Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Benners. We're back together, son. How are you? Hi, Bully. Great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. Hello everyone, just a polite warning that this episode features some uncomfortable language and a few stories that include descriptions of violence and racial abuse. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by Shearer, Shearer, it's Ben Shearer. To be more like Ben, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marner Show, become an official sponsor, get bonus content and grow the show today. Joe Marler is a big-hearted man, and he's got a podcast plan. It's the Joe Marler Show. It's the Joe Marler Show. Oh, oh, oh. Hello, and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marler, and this is Tom Fordyce. Tom, how are you? Tom, good. We have got an episode today which I'm thinking is going to be a really interesting one. A little bit controversial around the edges with some menace to it as well. Football hooliganism. A former football hooligan. Okay. Now, for me, this one... Oh, we got we got to try and strike the right note on this, mate. Because although I have plenty of anger inside me mm-hmm. and it has come out at various times in my life and in my career. I, when it comes to football and the hooliganism side of it, I've watched the films and it sort of makes it, I don't know, a bit a bit cool. Because you are a fair amount younger than me, Joe, so you don't remember it going on at the time, do you? I've really seen... I've never experienced it, really, no. It was pretty fucking horrible. Right. I'm excited about this episode, I am, but it's important we go in open-minded. You're very... You've got more experience of it actually happening. I've got no experience apart from Green Street and all the football factories and the films that glamorises it. So let's just hear him out and see what it's all about. Yeah, and then we will touch on some quite unpleasant things in the course of this episode, Joe. So if that upsets you, maybe try a different episode this week. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this. Our guest today is Riaz Khan. He is an author, a university lecturer and a former football hooligan. Hello, Riaz. All right, mate. I don't know. There's something 
in the politest way possible, Riaz. There's like, there's an air of like kindness about you. You've got a lovely smile. You've got like piercing eyes. Lovely, you me up? Lovely beard. <laughs> I think so, Riaz. <laughs> lovely beard. This is 20... No, 29 years old. Is it? Yeah. It's fantastic. How it? long has it got? Because it's about... I can't. don't know where your chin is. Joe's familiar with this I've experience. I've got no chin. I've got no chin. I've got a bum chin. See how small it makes your heads? Let's look at yours, Rio. Just shorten yours. Wow. You're such a different man. It's crazy. I'm not doing it again. However, there's also, from the little I know at the moment about you, there's this air of... He looks quite handy in a tear-up. Mm, fact that know. you've not really de- denied it. No, then... not really. Some depends who it is. And it's, I'm old now, so I don't think I could do it anymore. I do train, don't get me wrong. I still do whatever I do on the side and stuff, but I'm not a person to go out looking for trouble. We were discussing this, Joe, earlier in the day. Riaz, your life's arc is going to be interesting, but both me and Joe had a sort of same reaction to the former football hooligan thing. Because I was a kid growing up in the 80s, going to football, mainly with my dad. And the hooligan stuff was fucking horrible as a kid. And you saw it, you didn't like it, it changed the grounds because there was obviously the barbed wire and the fencing and the policing. I've got memories of particular grounds going with my dad and having to leg it as an 11-year-old kid with my dad away from trouble. And then when the whole, it's not a rehabilitation, but when that first generation of books came out from people like you and John King, Football Factual, that stuff about almost the glory days, I struggled with it because I felt it glamorised it. And now, this is a, I know this is a long-winded way of saying this, Joe, earlier in the episode, but now I see it coming back, Riaz, and I'm worried that the tales of old football hooligans is glamorising it again for the next generation. You know, subcultures always come back. Yeah. They always, make, they always come back full circle, like the mods. The mods started in the 60s, late 70s, early 80s, they came back again. The jam the punks, and Weller, yeah. The punks were... They died out in the late 70s, early 80s. They'll probably come back as well in some form. You know, so subcultures always repeat themselves like teddy boys that became rockabillies. So it just comes back. Like football violence now, in the 80s it was different. It was a, a different era. There was deprivation. There was Margaret Thatcher, who was in power. Sorry, excuse me, I got a bad taste in my throat. <laughs> She was in power. We need to do a th- sorry. We need to do something on the Thatcher because a lot of the Thatcher mentions, and I've got no idea. There's quite a, <laughs> and a lot of it also comes from you, Tom. So it's just right. Make note. We need okay. to do a Thatcher episode Stick at some notes. point. Okay, fine. Yeah. So she was in power, yeah. and there was the youth clubs were closing down. There was a lot of boredom. Unemployment was on the rise. This is the early eighties until 87, then when the yuppie scene came in, and you know everyone started getting a bit wealthy, and you know, and. Uh, there was nothing for us to do. So it's a different era. That, that era in the 80s, I know it was frightening for you because you were a young kid, but it was exciting for us. Why was it exciting? Because it was an escape from a mundane life. It was just boring. So let's get into that a little bit then. Tell us a bit about your up- upbringing, your background, where you're from, right, the area was... you grew up in to then make you go, oh, this is mundane, this is dog shit, I want to find something else in my life. Yeah, I was born in Leicester, born in Brown, I was born in the 60s, you know, time of also time of social change. And uh, a group in that area which was high was predominantly black, Irish, and Asians. 1972, we moved to another area called Wixton, which was predominantly white. And we was like the only Asian family in the whole estate. But it was all right, because it was the middle-class sort of suburban, high-working-class, middle-class sort of area. And there was not... I didn't suffer any racism until I moved into another estate later on. But in 1972, the Armin kicked out 60,000 Asians. And 20,000 of them came to Leicester. From Uganda? From Uganda. And what happened? 
there was this massive hatred all of a sudden. Before, we, they were tolerated us. We didn't suffer that much racism. But then as soon as the 20,000 landed in Leicester, it's like, boom, where the hell did these lot come from? It was like a massive invasion, according to the people that lived there, the locals. And the National Front was created on the back of that. And the headquarters were in Leicester. So you can imagine me growing up in Leicester, and there was a lot of racism getting chased by boneheads. Not skinheads. Skinheads were like into Trojan horse and there was into scar music and there was not into the racism side of things, but the boneheads were. But you can't distinguish the two. It's very difficult to. And you get chased all the time by these skinheads. So it was a very sort of troubling time. And at school, I was subject to a lot, even though I was one of the lads, but I was still subject to a lot of racism. You know, shopkeeper, you own a shop on the corner, don't you? Oh, but, but ding, ding, you drive a bus. Your dad drives a bus, don't Because a lot of conductors and those were bus drivers were Asian or black. So throughout school, me and my brother used to get, suffered so much racism because we went to a school full of white lads. And there's only a handful of Asians and blacks. So you can count them on your hands, about maybe nine or ten out of a school of 1,500. Constant barrage of racism. Even though it was in good humour, but it wasn't really because it was degrading to us, if you get what I mean. So... Those years between 11 and 16 was quite tough, those secondary year schools. You know, the year 11s to, well, year 7s to year 11s now. But it was year 1 to year 5 in those days, remember that? I think you're about my age, aren't you? Yeah. A <laughs> little, little bit younger. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, that, that all makes sense to me why you'd want to escape that and also fight back against it. The thing that you're going to have to help me out with here, Riaz, is when you become a hooligan... And you were with Leicester's baby squad, weren't you? Right. In my head, there's a massive crossover between the hooligan scene and white working class and also the National Front. Like, yeah. The stereotype in my head of a football hooligan in that time, in the 80s, does not include Asian lads. Yeah. Okay. Don't forget the hooligans in those days, before the casual scene came on, there were skinheads. Most of them were boneheads, there were skinheads. that went around packy bashing and beating up black lads and whatever and fighting against immigrants and whatever. So leaving school... The, at school, I was always on the fringes. I never belonged to anything because all the white lads were into either they were either skinheads, mods, or grebos. And I didn't like. What's a grebo? Heavy rocker, no oh, long hair, spray yeah, yeah, leather yeah. jackets, oh, okay. that like, weird perfume you used to wear, Pacelli, whatever it's yeah. called. Pachuli oil, yeah. Yes, the one, yeah. Used to wear that. Used to stink, you know. It's like, bloody hell, this guy stink. I couldn't be a grebo because it stank. And I couldn't <laughs> be a mod because my parents were sending money back home to Afghanistan and Pakistan. So it was, it was like, we was just. Given a set of clothing, here you go, kids, two, three pieces of clothing, that's going to last for the rest of the year. So there's no money for nice Italian suits and no. loafers and all the rest nothing of it? Like, yeah. Nothing like that, nothing like whatsoever. So I've always wanted to belong to some sort of culture because my culture, I thought, myself, because we was Patans, we're not, we're, there weren't many of us in Leicester. You're either Punjabi, Gujarati or uh, whatever, from Af East Africa. We didn't fit in anywhere, our family, we, we just felt it was all sort of on the outsides. We weren't, my parents were like in the community, but I weren't because I didn't really speak the lingo. It was like Urdu or Punjabi. We spoke Pushtu, which was a completely different language. And my first language was English because I, I dream my language. You know, whatever language you dream in, that's your first language. I used to, you always dream in English, so that was my first language as far as I was concerned. We was always on the fringes, even in my own community. And my dad always wanted us to be either doctors or engineers or lawyers. Or, you know, Asians are very uh, studious. They want the you know, best for their children. And my dad wanted the best for us. And we kind of let him down, to be honest with you, because uh, we went to the wrong school, got into the wrong crowd at school. We couldn't bother to educate ourselves because teachers thought you were stupid, thought you were dumb, so they didn't really put any, you know, effort onto you. So you just sat there daydreaming about God knows what. In my case, Marvel Comics. Yeah, so I was always on the fringe, never belonged to anything. So when I left school, I went to college, which was predominantly full of Asian kids. And I felt a bit out of place. I thought, okay, this is... 
they start speaking to me in their own lingo and they're in, they had their little cultural little habits and stuff, which I was not used to. So I was still on the outskirts, even though I, had, I belonged to a gang called the FBI, because we had to form a gang to protect ourselves from the racists and the boners and, and stuff. And what was the FBI stand for? <laughs> So corny, brilliant! It's, I love it. I love it. Any like sort of nickname or thing at the time that you get involved in, you're like, this is the coolest shit going. You look back at it in your past. Please be something, God. Female body inspectors. It was as fucking shit as that. <laughs> as shit as that. <laughs> I was literally going to go. Please let it be something shit like female body inspector <laughs> or something. But I did actually think it'd be that shit. But yeah, it was. Yeah. Because at school I couldn't pull any girls because they were racist. <laughs> so at college... <laughs> is that the only reason? reason? <laughs> is that the only reason? <laughs> it's a very extreme... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wicked, love it, wicked. Yeah. Great line. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so um, at college it was different because there's a lot of Indian girls and they're, they're sort of kind of like had green eyes and, you know, lighter skin than the, the average Asian. <laughs> so they're like... I was like, can get a little attention here. Yeah. So we formed this little gang, also for protection against the outside forces that used to come and try to fight everybody. I used to hang around as a gang, and I'd, my, my education went downhill because we started dossing around town and not educating myself and whatever. And I should have gone to university and I should have got a good job and become, you know, someone from a, like a doctor or an engineer or whatever. But no, that didn't happen because when I started hanging around town, I liked it. I liked the attention I was getting. I liked the hanging around and being a bad boy because I was never like that in school. So um, I saw a gang of lads walk past me in 1982, led by a black lad. And these lads were all, there's about 10 of them, all white stuff as black lad who led them at the front. Now, they all had great hairstyles, great clothes on, and they was led by this black lad. And I thought, who are these lot? There's about, there was like young lads my age. And someone said, that's um, such and such, and that's the baby squad. They all looked the same, but they didn't look the same. They was all individually dressed, but they looked the same. If you get what I mean, it's weird. I, I can't, not like goths. Goths looked the same in those days. You know, the Grebos look the same, the mods look the same, the skiers look the same. These lads, they all had design labels on, yet there was individual. It, it was weird, I can't say. And I thought, wow, these guys are so cool. And, you know, it was in the back of my head. I wanted to be like these guys, but I couldn't really afford the clothing because it was, you know. What, what brands are we talking for people who are unaware of this scene? Pringle, Lion Scott, Fila, Sergio Ticini, Iles. But that sort of labels, bleached tight jeans, Adidas trainers or Nike trainers or Puma trainers. And I thought, wow, these guys look really, really cool. So I started dressing like these lot, not realising it belonged to a culture. I just thought it's it it fashion. So I started dressing like these lads, these 10 individuals, I saw 10, 12 individuals. And I was hanging around, hanging around a shopping mall, which smelled of wee and urine and alcohol and stuff. It was a right dingy little place in Leicester, Leicester Town Centre. It's called the Haymarket. And this mixed race lad, it was half Indian, half white. He kept looking at me and he had a similar sort of hairstyle. He dressed really well as well. He was like, you know, just, we call them trendies in those days. And he commented and goes, I ain't seen you before. I goes, I ain't seen you before. <laughs> you know, one of those, weren't it? And he goes, uh, do you go to football? I goes, I play football, but I don't go to the football. No, who, who do you support? I goes, Arsenal, because I used to support Arsenal then. And he goes, you're dressed like a casual, like a trendy. Casual term can a little bit after. I goes, do I? He goes, yeah, yeah. He said, you should be coming around football. This is not, you're a plastic. Because if you wear clothing, if you wear the casual club, but you don't go football, you don't get involved in the violence, you're classed as a plastic. He started calling me a plastic. I goes, what do you mean? He goes, you don't go to football. He goes, there's a big match on Saturday. It's against Birmingham. They're called the Zulus, and then predominantly black and Irish. You must come to this game on Saturday. He's getting. I said. He said, "I'm going to get a little gang together." He's, this kid was like a couple of years younger than me. He was like 15 or 16. I was 17. He goes, "I'm getting a gang of lads together to go to Birmingham so we can have a big fight with them." And I thought that sounds good. Even though I was, I did martial arts in them, but I wasn't tough, you know. But I just thought, it was, yeah, it sounds like a good laugh. I'll come. So we had, he said, Saturday 10.30 at train station or 11 o'clock, I can't remember. So that was like on a Tuesday. So up to that time, I was so excited to go to this football match. 
And then when I actually got to the train station, there were about 70 lads. It was like an array of fashions. It looked really, really cool. Straight away, I thought, this is where I belong. All those years at school, where I didn't belong to anything. At college, I didn't really belong. I said, this is my calling. Right to passage, if you get what I mean. It's a Birmingham, Joe, at that point. There was a real, so you can tell the stories, but there were certain clubs, Joe, who had firms and certain clubs where we'd always go off. Villa and Birmingham and West Brom as well, to be honest with you, and Wolves. Just that area, just, just a rough area of Birmingham. It's the second biggest city in the country. And in London, it's always just going off. And uh, got on the train, I'm sat around looking at everyone, like in awe of these guys, well-dressed. And I thought I was the only Asian guy on the train, but there was a couple of other Asian guys that are older than me. There was two brothers and another Asian lad that was been going since 1972 or something ridiculous. And he was part of the firm. You know, the so that's baby this squad. baby squad yes. firm, is it? Yes. And this was the, the firm you went and met at the train station the first time? I met, no, I met one of the lads there at the train station. Yeah. And I saw two school kids that was at school with me, and they were part of the baby squad. And they were at school with me. So I was like, what the hell? And they were shocked to see me dressed like the way I was dressed. And they sort of, you know, it made it a little bit easier for me to get to know more people. Even though I was never, I was never one of the top lads, never, ever. I was just a follower. Because we created our own gang called the YTS, which was a young, trendy squad. Better nickname, it's still a bit shit, but yeah. <laughs> well, there was a YTS at the time, youth training scheme, yeah. so we adapted that acronym and turned much it into Much better than FBI. Much, yeah. much better. This is fucking what I'm talking about now. Don't you think the Baby Squad's a good name? That's I a do, but name. it's also... No, it's uh, a brilliant. And look, you've got the ICF and you've got the Red Army. And, what's the ICF? Uh, Intercity City Last night there was an action against the Germans, weren't West Ham. There? That's West Ham. Against was, the Dutch, sorry. Yeah. Traditionally, yeah. yeah. Chelsea was Headhunters, was it? Yep. What were the Leeds? A service crew. Yeah. So there, there was one at every club. So we got off the train station, 78. Everyone was looking at us, all the shoppers and stuff. And I felt, oh, getting more attention here. Because I dressed smart and I thought, everyone was looking at us and I thought... And it just, it just felt like you was on a catwalk. It just felt amazing. I know it's, I shouldn't be glorifying it, but it's a different era. You're talking about 1983, way before any... Well, not you, but way before you was born. So just, you know, just a different era. And just, it was really... It was this excitement. And the feelings you get from the actual kickoff, the actual confrontation, you never get that feeling ever, unless you're in the army or whatever. It's like an, a, feel, a feeling of adrenaline, fear, excitement, all wrapped into one emotion. It's weird, I can't describe it. People take drugs to get this sort of... It's addictive. Yeah, it's yeah, very I've, addictive. I've felt it loads. Just or from playing or rugby. Playing rugby, but also when I've been involved in fights and stuff like that, and it's the, the massive adrenaline buzz you get, coupled with the huge emptiness and crash after it. So I can understand why sometimes people go, well, I'm going to have to do this on a weekly basis because I need to go back and get that buzz. Well, we, never, we didn't crash. We were still buzzing from it until the next match. Right. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. So, got off the train station, out New Street, walking along. All I heard was, they're here. I remember walking across this, walking under this bridge, and there was like all these Afros looking down. There were the Zulu warriors there, like Afros in those days. They were all looking down. I thought, why are those lads looking at us? I didn't re realise that, that was their firm. Next thing you know, this black lad who was part of our firm, Derek, he says, here they are, lads, here they are, lads. So, we turned around. There's like 20, 30 lads come running down, going, Zulu, Zulu, chanting their war cry it just kicks off I'm right in the middle of it I'm thinking I've got this one pound umbrella remember the flick out umbrellas you get from pound stretcher I had that I was like, I'm right in the middle of scrap and I don't know what to do I'm like I used to do karate then I was like in the middle of scrap and I'm thinking what's going on here then all of a sudden this gingerhead guy about, about a little bit older than me maybe probably the same age he goes come on then come on then in his thick brummy accent so I went to swing at him with this one pound umbrella next thing you know I'm getting picked up 
back up. I'm thinking, what the hell? My, my legs are swinging, my arms are swinging. There's a bloody copper word. He goes, you're nicked, sunshine. And that's what he actually said. You're nicked, sunshine. <laughs> you know, if you hear about it all the time, you feel like it. Yeah. He actually said those words. And he threw me in the back of a van. I thought, oh, no. Because my dad was very strict in those days. As being an Asian lad, we never used to go out. Hardly, never used to go clubbing, never used to go to the... Well, the older Asian blokes used to go to their social clubs and stuff, but as lads, as girls and lads, we never used to go out at all because our parents wouldn't let us out because of the violence and the racism and all the rest of it. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm going to get in late. I want to get killed by my dad because I've been arrested. And I was just thinking about my dad is going to murder me. So I'm sat in his van and there's a black lad next to me. His name's Paddy. And he was getting battered by these two coppers, three coppers who were kicking the shit out of him. And I'm sat there, seven, 17 years old, about eight, eight and a half stone, petrified, because the coppers were calling me a black bastard. Really, I thought, Skinner chased me when I was a kid was work bad, but these coppers were actually racist, and they were, they were in uniform, and they had the law behind them. You know, they were the biggest firm in England, was the coppers. They're the biggest firm in England. And they got power as well, on top of it, to do what they want. And they were, I remember the stories about people getting battered by the police and being killed in the cells and whatever, you know, the racist abuse people used to get from policemen. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, I'm Asian, I'm dark. And the copper looked at me like that. And I thought, oh, I just put my head down. I thought, please don't start on me. And he didn't, thank God. But he was, he was looking, he was calling him because the reason why I was battering him because apparently copper went to arrest him and he threw him over his shoulder and broke his collarbone. He'd done a hip throw, one of those jammy ones. I don't mm. know how he did it. Mm. And he'd done a hip throw and broke the copper's collarbone. That's why they were battering him. Another three or four lads got into the van, got arrested, but it was about six of us. One from, one from the Wongs, there was a gang called the Wongs, which was a predominantly Asian gang who did martial arts. And they came along as well that day to have a scrap with the Birmingham lot because it was a big thing to find another black gang, a multicultural gang. So the lads in Highfields, this one lad in Highfields, tried to get everybody together and create a multicultural gang to fight them. He got put in the back of the van along with some members of the baby squad. So we got thrown into this cell. And this black lad, Paddy, he was put into a cell by himself somewhere else and look at him getting battered. Every hour or so, they'd be running in a cell battering him. Then when we got home, about half ten, and my dad was waiting for me. I thought, oh, am I going to get inside? So I opened the door quietly, snuck in. He goes, where have you been? I thought, oh. And he goes, uh, I didn't know what to say to him. He goes, where have you been? What time did you call? He's like quarter to eleven. It's late. For, for me, that was late. I mean, I should be home by eight o'clock. You know what I mean? Not quarter to eleven. I, didn't know what, I just came out of the truth, because I don't like lying. You know, I came out of the truth and said, I got arrested. He goes, what for? He thought it was for nicking or whatever burglary or something. I goes, for fighting? He goes, oh, okay. And I didn't realise because in our culture, fighting's okay. As you know, because of the Afghan, yeah. how they are, you know what I mean? They just like to have a good scrap every now and then. So, you know, he was okay with it. I thought, oh, okay. He goes, don't do it again. Go to bed. I thought, result, I can do this every week now. In my mind, I was saying, I can do this every week. And from that moment, I was doing it every week. Weird question, and it takes it slightly differently, but was it ever about the football football? Or is the football just... The stage. That's the stage. For me, it was anyway. For some of us, they were really passionate about the football. If they lost, they'll take it out on the opposing fans, no matter what. Whether there was for some idiots, they'll take it out on the scarfers, which you don't do. You don't touch the scarfers. What's a scarfer? The normal fans that wear a scarf. Right. They don't get involved in the violence, or they're to support the team, mm. which you get a lot of them now. I mean, there were loads of them then. They wear scarves and colours, and you don't touch them. That's the code. But some idiots would just because they're. They're frustrated because they lost. When you're in the ground, because Filbert Street was where Leicester played at that point. Yes. It was quite a tight little ground. Yes. Was it more of a buzz going to other towns and other cities and other grounds, or more of a buzz defending what you felt was your territory? If you go to other towns, it's more frightening. 
because it's just, you know, there's something's going to happen and you, and you don't know the streets. So it's more exciting but frightening as well. Whereas Leicester, you know, you've got loads of lads and you've got the older lot as well. And you know, you've got a good, it's like a fortress. You know, you can take on most firms in Leicester because you've got the backing, you know, the streets, you know where to go, you know, you know, you know, you just know it's your turf, it's your manor. Whereas you go out of town, it's a bit scary. But did it ever, ever change the ratio? So if you won a game, were you less likely to fight? No. Or more like, no. it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. Didn't care if you won or lost. It's still gonna, you know it's going to kick off after the game. And during the game, it always kicks off as well if you're at Leicester or somewhere else's ground. Depends if you infiltrate the away end. But the away fans, like especially London teams, they'd always infiltrate our end. Especially West Ham and Notorious for it. Millwall, Chelsea, those three teams. Arsenal as well. Let's have a little break for some adverts there, Joe, and we'll get more into Riaz's story in a moment. Drink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behaviour creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Drink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. Riaz, I want to talk a little bit more about the setup of this baby squad and the hierarchy. And you touched on you you formed this YTS, you and your group. Around what age were you when you set that up? I was 17 then. 17. Yeah. How long before you then started? Did you rise through the ranks in this baby squad? Is there a hierarchy to it? What the fuck? No, it's not like, really. How does it work? It's just you get to know everybody. There's no hierarchy. We're all lads. You've got the top boys. If you keep going regular, keep going regular, keep going, people get to know who you are, people get to recognise you there regularly. It's about who goes in, who stands their ground, who dresses well, camaraderie, that one-upmanship as well, the best dressed. But you can't overdo it. You have to have balance with it. So you can buy an outfit, but you might like a right twat in it. You get what I mean? So you have to have that balance of the hair, the trainers, the clothing, you know, the shoes. You have to have a right balance with it. And in those days, there's no hierarchy, really. They're all, you all got, you're going to get top boys, and all, there'll always be top boys. And some of the top boys drop out eventually after a few years. They're sort of dropping out. They don't go anymore. They do other things. And people move up and replace them. When I started leaving the football, I left in 89 because that's his house came into the into the picture, another subculture. A few years later, about 10 years later, I looked and seen these idiots that were idiots and they became, like, higher up the rank. They'd become the regulars of the Leicester baby squad. I think it's because because Joe is a different generation and how old is Joe? Thirty two. Oh yeah, you're young. So Joe has watched his football in the last few years mainly at the Amex in Brighton. Yeah, that's no, it's fine because it's a beautiful stadium and it's, it's lovely, way, really comfy. It's the way football pleasant. should be. Great fan experience. Riaz, there will be people listening to this who weren't around in the eighties and didn't go to football grounds in the eighties. And obviously, Leicester have moved on from the from Filbert Street. Just try and describe what it was like in the ground. So. There's no seats. Well, there are seats, but you're in the terraces behind the goals. Talk us through what it's like standing on the terraces. And also, it's cheap getting into football then, isn't it? So if you are a 17-year-old lad, it's not like today where you might be paying. How much do you you get your tickets free, there? All that matters is it used to be that much cheaper, didn't it, Ria? So try and take someone like Joe, and if you're at Filbert Street... Tell us exactly, when you're looking at the pitch, what you can see around you, what you can see in front of you. Well, sometimes I was sitting in the East End, which was like a seated area. Half it would be for home fans, half it for away fans. Then you have the spy on cop behind the goal, 
which is all standing. We used to all stand there sometimes. We used to sneak in. It used to be about three quid to get in those days. And sometimes at half time, they open the gates and everybody just rush in and you couldn't get them because it was standing. It, there was not, like, no numbers. It'd swell up. It'd be packed with big games. You know what I mean? So you can imagine how you'd be squashed standing. Big fences at the front. Yeah, there was fences, actually, there was, yes. There was fences between the away fans and the, each sparring cop would have a fence and there'd be a fence at the front, but not so big. You'd have double-decker above us, above the sparring cop, there'd be a double-decker, which is a seated area, which would always kick off up there as well. And on the left of me, if, if you're looking from the sparring cop behind the goal, the other side would be the west stand, which was like a main stand, which is a seated area, which would go up like this, like at an angle, 45-degree angle. And in the corner would be a family stand where all the families would sit and would stand, actually, with their stand. And on the opposite side would be the north stand, which was a seated area as well. So it depends on which side you go in. You can just walk in and buy a ticket and sit down. If the east stand was full up, you'd go to the spine cop. If you didn't want fans to go in spine cop, you'd go double decker. It was great. You'd just walk in, pay on the gate. Pay on Sometimes you could just sneak in. Jump over, you know, that, oh, okay, and you just run off and they can't get you because you've just run in. There's no CCTV cameras or anything. So, who were who were your big firm rivalries with? Chelsea. Chelsea and was Coventry. Your, that was your biggest. Yeah. Everybody came out for Chelsea. Everybody. I'm talking about the ghetto youths used to come out as well because we hated them because they were racist. They were so racist. We hated them. Everybody would come out for them. Even the lads in Highfields, which is the predominant Asian and black hair, would come out just to fight Chelsea. Tom, we, sp we spoke about this, about glorifying it or talking in a way that makes it seem a better thing than how I imagine it as it was. But I'm really struggling to, to separate the need, or not the need, the want for Leicester's baby squad and their want to punish potential... Just on this occasion, for this example to punish a Chelsea squad. What were the Chelsea... Headhunters. Headhunters. Because they were renowned for being racist. Riaz has been brought up in a in a culture, society that is racist, so he's only ever known racist abuse. And he's got an opportunity at a football game to go after renowned racists with a load of multicultural friends of his. I'm struggling to separate it from... What the fuck, what the fuck are you thinking, Riaz? Why are you doing that? That's fucking... At a football game, football should be going to watch this game, this beautiful game. There's loads of families, or they, they should have the ability to loads of families there and enjoy it in a safe environment, all that lot. But there's also a big part of me that's like, fucking go and do them, take some fuckers' <laughs> head off. But if they're going to give you that, do you know? There's, I'm, I'm yeah. in this juxt, juxted position. <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to make up a word. Yeah, it's, I'm it's at a these nice, crossroads. Yeah, it's nice. Where but I I'm like, like juxtaposition. Juxtaposition. You are in a juxtaposition. Where I'm like, I want to sit and go, Riaz, I couldn't give a shit how you dress it up. You shouldn't be fucking fighting a, a thing. And regardless of a different era, get fucked. It should be a safe environment. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. But then on the flip side of it, I'm like, hang on, who am I to sit here and judge you and your life, the way you brought up and the decision you, you decided to go make and, and want to take it out on people? Do you know what I'm saying? Can I make I'm a really great point here? The casual culture broke down every racial barrier. Why? Because we was accepted. It's bizarre. If you could fight or if you had the right clothes? If you were just part of a part of firm. Before the baby squad became the baby squad, they were skinheads. They were racist. But when the casual culture come in, there were still some elements of racism within the baby squad, no doubt about it. The turning point for me was when we went to Skagness in 1984. There was loads of skinheads that came from all over, from Sheffield, from all over. One lad who whacked him on the head was from Sheffield. He was a proper skinhead. He was dead hard as well. I mean, <laughs> really hard. Flipping heck. It was tough as steel. He whacked me with an iron bar with a billboard. It was like made out of uh, metal. He whacked me right on my head just then. Bloods all over my arm on jumper. And I was crying about my arm on jumper because it was a really nice jumper. 
and it cost me quite a bit of money then. You know what I mean? There was a massive scuffle with the Skinners and the baby squad. The police got involved and stuff, and I was in the ambulance. I was looking out the ambulance window, and I seen the baby squad doing zig hiling these Skinners. And that, for me, was a turning point, because these ex-Skinners, ex-racists, had thrown that culture away and became more, not understanding, more acceptable. Acceptable. That's, that was a turning point for me. Even though there were a couple of Asian lads within the baby squad, obviously the racism was always there. Black lad was a leader. There was always going to be racists in that firm, you know what I mean? But they kept it very quiet and kept it very... They accepted those individuals, but en masse I'm talking about, because Leicester had about 20 Asians in their firm and loads of black lads as well. What were the most notorious afternoons or nights for you, Rez? Because there are certain set pieces as the 80s developed. There was a, a match at Luton uh, in about 85... Uh, I think it gets Millwall and all the seats are getting ripped out, being yeah. thrown around Kenilworth Road. There was match, definitely matched at Stamford Bridge at the old Den and Millwall at uh, St Andrews at Birmingham City. For you, what were the, the matches or the occasions when it got out of hand, when it just got stupid? Arsenal at home in October 1984. It was just, it went off from like 10 o'clock in the morning till about 9 o'clock in the evening. Many, many arrests. It just ongoing violence all the way through. You know, so that was a brilliant... I, I shouldn't big it up. I know uh, you look... No, 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 no. I shouldn't... Because you, you're a different You speak era. freely, mate. You speak however you want and you can justify it how you want. I, it's I your, can't justify it, that because it's, it's, your, it's, it's your story. Mike, I, I can't... He's rubbing his nose. That means he's lying. No, he's just got a really big nose. It's your story. I can agree yeah. and disagree with it all I want, but it won't yeah. change. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's important to have like open conversations yeah. about it and go accept being challenged on it and vice versa, yeah. like with all the conversations we have. Yeah, it was Arsenal at home October 1984. They brought a massive firm. Their leader was a black lad who's dead now. Denton, his name was. He was a bouncer for the, he was a bodyguard for the pet shop boys. And he got run over in Russia. He was a top boy at the time, and they were called the, uh, we called them the Gooners, but they were called the Herd. And they came out, it was just a crazy day. Many, many arrests. It just, and we had Derby, Derby joined up with us then. We were called the DLA, Derby Leicester Alliance. Derby fans, Derby fans. <laughs> like a building society. <laughs> <laughs> they were called the DLF, which sounds even, sound like a pop band, KLF, yeah. DLF. Yeah, yeah. And um, they joined up with us, and we were called the Derby Leicester Alliance then, for, temporarily for about six months to about nine months. And they were with us, so we had a massive firm. And also had a massive firm. They had, they had the best dressed in London at the time. It was just going mad. It just went mad in the, since it off the train, round the ground, in the ground. It kicked off in the ground in a double-deckers. It kicked off in the family stand where the most of the Arsenal fans were standing in the family stand. After the game, it kicked off till late, in the, well, not late, till about nine o'clock in the evening. The Tuesday morning, we knew there was up court, so we went to court and I had to kick off him in court as well, the magistrate's court. So it was just one of those mad, violent days. It was just probably the best day of violence for me anyway because it was, it was also a catwalk fight because they were best dressed and we were good dressers as well. And just, it was just one of those days. Are we, what are we talking weaponry-wise? Like, was there sort of this strange honour amongst thieves where it was all about fists? Was there certain firms who were carrying knives? Yeah, Stanley knife was one of the weapons, a carving knife which if you get struck with one, it's very, very nasty. And I remember Arsenal, in 83, this lad, this lad called Winnie, he got slashed on his back from, by an Arsenal lad, young Arsenal lad, and he, you know his back was all opened up, it was horrible. He got, I think he got stabbed, I don't know if he got slashed. Like, he went through his coat, and it must have been a knife, I don't know what it was, and his back was opened up. And he was only like, he was only like 15, 16 years old, that kid was then, the lad from Burstall got slashed. Liverpool were famous for it, carrying Stanley knives. I remember one of our top lads got slashed across his face, we had a fight with Everton fans that came, Everton crew, they were called the uh, County Cutters crew or something. And um, 
we clashed with them outside the ground. There's about 40 of them, and there's about 60 of us. It was a good little scrap. And our top, one of our top boys, he was fighting with their top boy, and I was watching them. Everybody's fighting around me. I was watching these two. It's like a, you know, you get Sabutio, not Sabutio, like you get the, uh, remember those old toys where you used to fight? Oh, yeah, the red and, yeah, red and blue, know, like, yeah, yeah, you know. The, 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 Button bashing, yeah, yeah, that's the, the one. In yeah, the yeah. ring, yeah. It was like watching that. This, these two just going at it, bang, 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 bang. And I stood there where everybody's scrapping around me. I was watching these two lads fight, our top lad and their top lad. It was like watching a boxing match. And also, I seen the Everton lad just pull out a blade from his inside pocket and went whoosh in one movement. And next thing I you know, the guy dropped. He was holding his face like that. And he had a massive scar across his face from a slash mark. And then people saw him drop and saw him holding his face. We all knew he got slashed. The violence intensified and we ran them down the road. What about yourself? What's the worst injury you've sustained from... No, I'm, I've been fortunate. I've been, been kicked right. around a bit. I've been fortunate, yeah. I've been punched a few times by Chelsea, which I, I hate Chelsea. Several times by Chelsea, actually. Uh, I've only been hit with iron bar from that skinhead. I've been fortunate, to be honest. I've never, been, I've never had the living hell kicked out of me. What about injuries that you've given out to other people? Yeah, there's been a number of this. I've, okay. There was one thing that was outside of football. Outside of football. We went to, on holiday to Torquay. And we got into an incident with some older lads from Gloucester and Bristol. They were much older. They were on a stag night. It was, it was only 18 years old. We were kids. And these guys were in their late 20s, 28, 29, 30. And I had a stag, someone said to me, carry a blade because it's so rough down. There's loads of scousers and carry a Stanley knife. And I was, I was a bit thick. No, I wasn't a bit thick. I was thick. You know what I mean? So I took this stand life for me, thinking, okay, this is my protection. I was in this nightclub. We got a lot of attention from the women. No doubt about it. We got a lot of attention from the women because we it was all, it was a multicultural little gang. It was about 10 of us. The girls were like thinking, who are these lot? Oh, these, these lot are different. You know, so we got a lot of attraction, a lot of you know, attention. And these older blokes didn't like it. They did not like it at all. And one of the lads who remember the baby squad now, he was called the, one of the MMA, he puked up on the dance floor. And one of these old lads said, Tom, to pick it up or clean it up. And the guy was steaming drunk. So my mate, who was a black lad, said, you can't do that, what are you talking about? And I see him, there was a confrontation on the dance floor. So I come barging up and I pull that stain knife, flick the stain knife out and said, F off, leave us alone. And the, the guy's backed off and I thought, okay, that's the end of it. Thank God for that. And they're not going to say anything to us now. So we're enjoying ourselves, chanting loads of girls and stuff, right? I even pulled that night, but I couldn't do anything because my mate come up to him and goes, we've got to leave now. I'm like, what do you mean we've got to leave now? I'm like, no, no, I don't. Well, we've got to leave now. So he gathered everybody together, 10 of us. So we walked out and then all these guys are lined up outside. So we walked out and there was these guys on a stag night. Good 10, 15 of them lined up. And I thought, oh God. And we went to turn around and one of my mates trying to get his Greek lad, trying to get back in, but they wouldn't let us back in. Because dorms just a lot of doors on us. We thought, oh, no, we've got no choice now. We had no choice but to fight. And then they came up to us. There was a bit of hoo-ha, hoo-ha, a bit of, bit of this. And all of a sudden, just kicked off. Boom. And I saw the main instigator, their leader. And I saw him. I went for him. And I slashed him up. I carved him up. I was, I was steaming. So, I, you know, I was... No excuse. No excuse. Uh, you know, I was 18. I was a twat. No excuse. I carved him across here, across here. Across, across his, his head, forehead and his across chest. Across his chest, yeah. Right. We need to talk about the repercussions of this. So did you feel any remorse at the time? How do you feel? Because you are now 57, are you? Yeah. Right, when you look back at that young man, how do you feel about him now? He'd be in his late 60s. He'd probably be about 65, 60. I know his name, and I know he's like 10 years older, so he'd be in his late 60s now. So at the time, I didn't care. You know when you're 18, you don't give a shit, do you? You just think he deserved it. He was racist, he deserved it. He was calling his names and stuff. So I thought, I don't give a shit, he deserved it. You know what I mean? But then looking back now... Maybe he's walking around and saying, look, yeah, I got into a fight and got this model. Maybe showing off his scars. I don't know, because people do show off his scars, don't they? See, so, yeah, I got this and I got that. I don't know. 
And how, how do you feel about the 18-year-old Riaz? Sort of person who's no, doing stuff like that. Daft. Because alcohol was involved, violence was involved, and it's not a good mix. As a Muslim, I'm not supposed to be doing that anyway. Even though I wasn't practising at the time, I wasn't a Muslim at the time, I was far from my religion. But looking back now, if I can go back in time, I'll say, what are you doing? Go back to college, go back to university, do something better than doing this. But it was, like I say, it's a different era. I won't be the same person I am now if I can go back in time and change the way I was. I'll be a different person now. I won't be who I am now. This episode is sponsored by the following excellent people. The Dragon, William Welsh. King Louis Morgan. Oh, from the Netherlands, it's Mel Shalloway. The engineer, Warren Allsop, simply the best. It's Mark Bestley. Crapper's delight, it's Carl Crapper. We need to talk about Kevin Duffy. PC, Peter Clark, the slayer, Vicky Lou, Ratatouille, it's Andrew Hanratty, John Cage, John Sheldrake and Ben Wallace. Bob Hope and Glory, Dave the Viking Darking and Becky with the good hair, Garrett. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor, get bonus content, and grow the show today. You spoke about your dad the first time when you got arrested and you were scared shitless of how he'd react. But he actually was all right with it. He said, don't do it again, Thee. But you did do it again. You did carry on do it again. How did you get away with that, with such a strict life at home? I think he gave up on us. Right. Because me and my brother were doing it. He actually gave up. But he concentrated more on my sister and my younger brothers because they weren't into that. So he kind of gave up on us, two older ones, because me and my brother were both into it. And when I got nicked and went to prison for the... I was on remand. He'd come and visit me every week. He travelled all the way on a bus from Leicester to Exeter and bring a big food parcel with him every week, no doubt. But so you ended up doing time for yeah, the... 12 months. ...the slashing incident yeah. in the club? Yeah, I got nicked. I went up court, I was being around for seven and a half months and I had a lot of remorse because I just wanted to get out of jail. I just wanted to get out. I missed football, I missed my mates, I missed my family. I hated it. First time being in prison, I hated it, every second of it. Hated it because I was far away as well. I was in Exeter. I was in Bristol in Puckle Church. Then I was in Portland in the middle of nowhere. That's right down near Southampton. And I was the only Asian lad in the prison at the time as well, so that was tough for me. So, yeah, I went to court, and the judge looked at me, and he gave me 12 months. I only had two weeks in prison. So I was out after two weeks, two and a half weeks, I was out. So the judge felt pity on me, because he realised that gang was a racist, they were older, and I was a young Asian lad in the middle of nowhere, sort of thing. And he was, he was kind of kind to me, to be honest with you. Most judges ain't, but he was very kind to me. Going back to the football firm's setup. And my knowledge of it, you two obviously a bit older, so you've got more detailed knowledge and understand it, but my knowledge is based around Green Street and fucking Football Factory, of which I enjoyed growing up, really enjoyed them as things. But that's all I know as what a football firm was about. Is that a real depiction of what it was like, or is it just... Elements. Too far very, from very the truth. Small, yeah. Come on, American guy being a top boy. I'm not sure about that. But the firm... That's more real. Not the Gary Oldman version, but the one that came afterwards by Nick Love. So, yeah, but that's more, that was more real. That was more realistic to how it was. And when did it start changing, both for you, Riaz, and for football in general? Because I remember a period, probably I started noticing, because I'm just a little bit younger than you, he says again. Um, <laughs> I started noticing it on the terraces in about 1990, where you'd just be aware that some of the older lads would be angry with some of the younger lads saying, we know what you've been doing. And the older lads would be drinking and the younger lads were looking very happy and floaty. <laughs> I stopped going then. I went to Ashley House instead. I think it was 1987 first time. We went born for away and I saw his 
it was a weekend, we went for a weekend and um, there, was a, there was a scuffle in this pub or a bar or something and I remember seeing this big massive window, it was like glass plane window, wooden windows with, and they got Georgian windows, sorry, yeah. and they got little scu- I had a massive commotion, so me and my friends running up because we was into partying and stuff in those days as well, so we went running up, was into the Beastie Boys and Run DMC, that was the era, that was that era and I looked for the glass plane and I seen this, this massive commotion, there's a beautiful woman, she was very elegant, very tall, very beautiful. She must have been a model or something. This glass came out of nowhere, smashed her straight in her face. And I seen her face split open and I thought, we just looked at her and she thought, I ain't down with this. And my mate said, no, I ain't down with this shit. What's going on there? You know what I mean? So we just walked away. And from that moment, it sort of slowly, but surely we started pulling away from it. But then in the Hillsborough disaster, that's what April did it. That was a nail in the coffin. So yeah. how, old, how old are you at this point, sorry? 23, I think it was. 23. 23, 24, that sort of age. And how did the, the the stuff that was happening elsewhere in in British culture, the stuff that was happening with Acid House, how did that affect football hooliganism? Killed it. Killed because? It. Because people since Acid House wanted another escape, another... And it became massive. By 91, it just engulfed the whole country. And we started in 1989. After Hillsborough's House, we thought, what's going on here? And then obviously people went on holiday and they brought that back with them to the cities. And we started doing that instead, going to warehouses or nightclub and just popping knees and acid and just dancing all night instead of fighting. So 12 months previously, we'd, we'd go to places like Coventry and Nottingham. 12 months previously, we were flipping scrapping with them. We are hugging and dancing with them on the dance floor, which is really weird. You know what I mean? It's like make love, no, you know, no war sort of thing. But that, that sounds a lot... It's a different buzz. Yeah, that sounds a lot more like <laughs> I could get down with that. I it mean, was that's... a massive change, as I say. Yeah. I remember it happening. I've got mates who are a little bit older and closer to Riaz's age. And it was a fundamental change in working class culture, that idea. And and th- there was a look, wasn't there? And there was a new look of clothes and everything else, the baggy clothes and the bucket hats, yep. everything else. And it was a total change. And you felt it as, what would I have been then? 16, 17, you felt it at football grounds. Football grounds and other things changed after Hillsborough, all see Stadia, mm. better policing, the fences came CCTV. down. Yeah, there was a total change in the atmosphere. And it was just really interesting how something that happened miles away from football in music, something that started in New York and Chicago, that sort of music, and then European house and places in Italy, how that could transform something which felt totally different in a different part of the world. A lot of people went to Spain and places like where they had this sort of culture in Italy and even the Greek islands, some of them had like little nightclubs and were popping ease and popping, you know, it was, it was a new thing, it was a new buzz. So by that point, had you and your friends decided, right, enough's enough, we're getting out of this hooligan stuff, or were you still...? It was the end of the season. That was, I think that was the last game of the season, Hillsborough, that day. Chelsea at home, that was the last game of the season. So the next game would be like 10 weeks later or something. So within that 10 weeks, that was a change. Boom, just changed. Stopped going to football, started dressing down, like I said, like wearing baggy jogging bottoms and uh, Clark's shoes or kickers and wearing granddad shirts and having long hair. You know, it started, oh, everything started changing. But then obviously we went back into the fashion. About a year later, we stopped dressing like we started getting back into Stone Island and CP and Ralph Wren and Timberland and stuff. So the, the resurgence came back again. The style came back. The football style from the terraces came back again, but in the acid house scene. So at what point did you then start stepping away from the hooliganism? 89. And I stopped going to the acid house in 91. Because? Because I had a bad trip. It done my head in. I couldn't get out of it and everybody thought I'd gone weird so they sort of backed away from me because they wanted to party, they wanted to have a good time and at, t- at, t- at that time in my life everything was going wrong for me so I went to deep depression and the drugs did not help me at all. It made me more insular, more paranoid. So for about 18 months to about two years I was just on my own basically 
and my hair was dishevelled. I didn't dress up or anything. Then I found another avenue for me to, you know, look into, and that was my religion. That was my faith. I just went into my faith. Boom. That's what I've been. That's what stopped me from doing everything. I mean, these are massive changes, Joe, in a young man's life. There's a lot, there's a lot of changes, a lot of U-turns in your life, Riaz. Yeah. So now you campaign against gang culture. You do talks. You do lectures. What sort of things do you say to impressionable young people and you look at it and you, th- and you think, I can see a bit of my younger self in you? I just tell them it's not worth it. Educate. I went back to university and got myself a degree, got myself a master's. Now I'm a teacher, believe, <laughs> from that extreme to this extreme. It's mad, ain't it? Just how things change. And it's fucking brilliant. I love it. I love the, the full circle nature of it. It's brilliant. It's mad. I just, who'd thought that I'd become a lecturer at university? It's just, it's just crazy. I lecture English to foreigners. So... Um, I say to them, educate. Just educate yourself, because what happens if you get a criminal record now, your life's over. Education, education, education. I always talk about, don't hate people because they're different. Accept them, as long as they don't shove it down your throat. You know what I mean? If they want to be like that, it's up to them. As long as they don't force it upon you, just respect them for what they are. That's what I try to teach the kids now, even my own children. I've had many people come to my house, white, black, brown, different religions, and my kids see that, so it educates them as well. And that's the way, that's the way forward. If you want to bring unity in this country, that's the way forward. Because there's so much division now. And it's down to poverty and down to hatred and down to blaming someone else. You know, and that's not going to go away until we become better ourselves. You also wrote a book, did you? Yes, I did. The Memoirs of... Of an Asian Football Casual. And in that you talk about a lot of the stuff that we've discussed on... Yeah. More in depth. But uh, in depth. the reason why I wrote it is because I saw the rise of the EDL on the terraces. And I thought, oh, no, another Combat 18. That's what I thought. Because Combat 18 were very... Especially with Chelsea, they were a far-right group that were really into, you know, recruiting people and fighting, you know, against immigrants and blacks or whatever. And I saw the same thing with the EDL and I thought, how can I reach out to these guys, the young, impressionable lads? Even the older lads are getting into it as well, guys my age. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? And then I wrote this book and I thought, maybe I can educate them from writing a book about my experience as an Asian lad in the same culture. So I wrote a book. It did okay. It didn't do brilliant. I mean... It, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't about the money. It did okay. I mean, people knew about it. People got to know about it. From that book, there was a play, and I won an award for that play as well. The play was brilliant because every night there'd be standing ovations because of the whole story. If it ever comes out again, I'll let you guys know. So this play was based on... My um, memoirs. Your memoirs. Yeah. And are you at peace with the things that you did in the past now, Riaz? Where are you with remorse? Yeah, like I say... Uh, uh, I can't change time. I can't go back in time, can I? I can't change anything. So I'm at peace with it. I mean, I did it. It was only for a few years. I did what I did. I won't do it. I won't never do it again. It's blocked off from there. And if I can educate people of avoiding that, then I'll do it. But I'll never do it again. It's not worth it. And when you see young kids fighting again at football grounds now or outside football grounds, how do you feel about that? I think they're going to get nicked in the morning. I think they're daft because they're going to get nicked. And there's no escape from it because there's so many cameras and this and that, so much social media. Everything... It's all over the internet. Faces and people see, you know. For me, what's interesting in in your answer is, yeah, I'd tell them you're fucking stupid because you're going to get caught. Not, I'd tell them you're fucking stupid because it's the wrong thing to do. So if I was to, if I had the ability to take away all the cameras, phones, CCTV, any sort of thing, would that change your answer in terms of... That would. Would it? Every young man needs to have a punch up every now and then. It's just a rite of passage. Working class youth, they're always getting to punch-ups, whether it's outside a nightclub, whether it's walking down the street. But this could be a controlled punch-up where people get, get into a fight every other Saturday, have a little scrap. Why can't it come out through playing sport? Why can't it come out through... For MMA. 
Yeah, through boxing, through MMA. Because not everybody, not everybody can do boxing in MMA. Not everybody can do because limited, aren't you, in space and stuff. Whereas football, it's a working class sport. Where it isn't, isn't now, but it was. It's a working class sport. It's a game watched by, played by gentlemen, watched by thugs. Where rugby's the other way around, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, played by thugs, watched by gentlemen. You go to a rugby match, everybody's a gentleman. They've got their tweed hats on and you know their barber coats on. You know, rather. And then, you know, football is the opposite. Right. You've, well, you've, you've summed it up to a T there, but the counter-argument would be, from a, fa- from a father's point of view, like I've got four kids, and I, I sit here in a, in, I say it again, in, a, in a strange position because, naturally, I have the similar urges to what you've described, that from a very young age, I had a lot of aggression. And I'd always want to take it out somehow on someone. I was angry at everyone and everything. But I found rugby. I, I was channeled in. I played football a bit, but I ended up being too fat. Couldn't really run them. Whereas <laughs> rugby was sort of a, a thing that I got into. Yeah, working class family ended up playing in this middle upper class sport. And it's but it was great for me because I could channel this aggression that I had on a weekly basis into what I would describe as being able to assault someone legally yeah that that helped channel it and at the same time i want i i understand as as young men we have these urges but i i want to be able to take my kid my boy he's a man united fan i want to be able to take him down to brighton which i do which is a lovely spot wait, wait, wait. he's a man united fan we live near brighton so i can only take him to Br- when man united come down and we <laughs> I'm a, isn't yeah, I'm not. I'm a Seagulls fan, and we only go and watch. But your son's a Man United fan. Yeah, but he should be converting your son to become. I tried, mate. I tried taking him. But his, his uncle, he's nine, but his uncle, a he's a Man years, United fan, and he adores his uncle, so he's like down that line. But I want to have the ability to take him to a football game. You can without the fear yeah, and without the worry. You can. In England, it doesn't really happen, does it? To be honest with you, it happens in faraway places away from the ground. So you can, and I don't think the lads who are fighting each other, they're going to pick on you and your family. There's some rules of engagement. So there is these yes. unwritten rules. Yes, rules of you engagement. You touched on earlier about the scarves. Yeah. We don't yeah. touch the scarves. Yeah. We stay away we from the families. Women, families. If anyone hits a kid, for example, they get steamed by the rest of the lads. They'll say, what the hell are you doing? Da, da, slap them up, you know what I mean? Or whatever. If it ever happens, which it doesn't happen, it's very rare it happens. Yeah, you can take them to the football ground now. It's different. I'm just talking about if young men want to scrap, let them scrap as long as they don't kill each other. Thing is, Rez, you know, so I'm going to come back at you with one big set piece occasion, the final of the Euros, okay, England against Italy at Wembley. So it's the biggest showpiece football occasion in this country since the 1966 World Cup final. There are families there. There's people who've taken partners, and it was horrific, and it was horrific all day long, and it was going off outside the stadium. It was going off inside well, the that's stadium. That's terrible. No, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. If there's families and women and children there, I don't agree with it. If there's young men. And other young men in the middle of it and they don't want to scrap, let them scrap. But if there are women and children involved, no, I ain't down with that. I wanted to come into this this recording and hear your story and hear, because that's the whole point of the podcast, hearing everyone's different stories and walks of life and having it from a place of love. You know, like you talk about as a, as a lecturer, that everyone's got different beliefs and understands that as long as they're not ramming it down your throat, but, you know, you respect them for what they are. Mm. And the goal was not to glorify football hooliganism. And I think we've touched on a fair whack of it all. And I, I still sit on this sort of scale. I know which side of the scale you, you're sitting on, but I do sit on this side of the scale. And I don't just say that because I'm fearful of having a scrap with you in here. No, no, no. I do. <laughs> Look at the size of you. 
get that. He's had childhood <laughs> trauma. That's why he doesn't like the football violence. That's what it is with him. But with right. you, I don't know. And I will not fight you, no chance. It's the size of the bleeder. <laughs> Riaz, I have to say, it's a very smart move. Um, Riaz, thank you so much for coming thank today. It's been on, a really it's fascinating discussion. Thanks thank a lot you. for coming, mate. Brilliant. Magic. Thanks a lot, Alex. I feel like I need a big deep breath after that, Joe. I feel like we need to decompress a little bit. Yeah, uh, you could definitely like, feel the tension in the room at times. I like that we get to do this from some of the episodes we, we do on random, easy, laugh a minute to the nitty gritty of what a football hooligan was like or how they've, how they have or haven't changed their ways since being in amongst it. I, I really enjoyed, it may not be the right word, but I really enjoyed listening to his story, to Riaz's story. How, how do you feel off the back of that, mate? I, I need a little bit of time to think about it, so I'm going to ask you a question, which isn't me deflecting yours, but I wanted to ask you this before we finish. So you've talked about how you felt about the chat. How do you feel about Riaz? I liked him. There was a, a big part of me that really liked him. That big part of me is also a part of me that I don't enjoy anymore in a weird way that I've spent and I still spend a lot a lot of time and trying to change or trying to improve or trying to get away from certain characteristics that I don't like about myself or didn't like about myself. Yeah. But I did still find myself drawn back to Riaz and a lot of the, the stories that he, he came out with appealed to me and yet it doesn't appeal to me now in this day and age where I sit in my life with my wife, my kids, the role model I'm trying to be to them. I don't, I'm really grateful to Riaz for coming on and, and sharing his story and he's doing some great things with his university lecturing and, and his book and his play. I'll be interested to hear your debrief once you've had some time to decompress. Thank you, Joe. I think everyone knows by now the subscription chat and the merch chat, so why don't we just leave it there for today and Joe, I'll see you next time. See you soon, Tom. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.